In 2 Kings, we're going to pick it up in um, verse, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7 right now. Because in verse 8 of last week, the title was Morning After the Morning is Glory. The two words I don't want you to be confused with. The first implies the break of day. The other implies the sorrow that we feel in perhaps what a day has yielded or several days, months or years, something that comparatively we want a fresh start. So we took the look, if you would, of a woman who literally had to move into a self-banishment from her land in which a famine had been prophesied by Elisha. She took her stuff, her belongings, her son, and went away for about seven years. When the famine broke, she returned. And she had in that somebody who was a broker for her. The famine broke. She was probably not doing too well, per se, financially. But when she had opportunity to come back, there was word that had been given to the king on behalf of a guy named Gehazi, who was the former minister, helper of Elisha. As you remember, he got leprosy for becoming someone less than what he should have been in ministry. But what we didn't see anticipating what the Lord would do several years later is to obviously give him a position, and it was right next to the king, who wasn't necessarily a good guy. I'm sharing this with you again, hopefully in brevity, because he had no hope or opportunity to be anything near the privilege he once had being next to Elisha. But in that very moment, God had secured him to be an advisor to a very nasty king. But all he could speak about was God's goodness and the merit of Elisha, in which that king, who now owned that woman's land, said, hmm, then I shall give the land back to her in its entirety. All that she once had, I shall give it back to her. So we looked at some encouraging scriptures. The years that the locusts have eaten, the munching locusts, the gurgling locusts, the mandible dinosaur locusts, any locusts you can think of that ate whatever it was you had. The promise was is that he would restore what had been lost. So that's where we come from right now, moving into what would be another event. It's a tragic event. So I'm assuming that you've turned on your radio dial. You've probably seen some news broadcasts or news scrolling sources that say, man, the world is falling apart. It is good observation, good deduction. It is falling apart. In order for the Lord to accomplish what ultimately is the summation of the ages or the consummation ultimately of his bride being brought up and rescued, things don't get better. If they got better, we would be in pseudo-heaven. We've had, at times, decades in which they were nicer. 
But we're a generation right now that lives on the precipice of what we ought to be considering, and that is the rapture or the gathering of the church by the Lord into heaven. That in what this theme represents today, and the sorrow that it can evoke, and if you would, taking a lot of that data in and going, is there any hope? There's one hope. It's not our government. It's not any institution apart from the church, which is linked to God. And God is the one who has both license and authority to handle in his sovereignty every event that both causes consternation, but also at times causes elation. For he turns the events of any government, of any people, to ultimately subjection under his authority. And even as we see in the uprising, and we'll take a look at some scripture that'll fasten us to the details of why you are not to let go of God. You are not to give up on his plan. You are to remain anticipatory of the fact that he is going to come and get us, but he also wants others to join us who have not made that decision for him. This story is important because we're going to see a side of Elisha that is akin to a side that we, at least in two main areas, see in the Lord. He was the suffering servant. He came as a saving work, literally, a divine work in our life, and yet he would suffer and be acquainted with sorrow. And Elisha is going to experience a time in which he's so overwhelmed with sorrow that he weeps, even finds it difficult to express accurately what he's feeling. And maybe for you, that's something as well. You are without words. And it could be that events in your life have conspired to take your eyes off the Lord. That can happen. It could be, as we said earlier, that God's summoning from you courage and there's just too much discouragement. You know, many of us right now are just saying, man, bring back any decade but this one, right? I always had an affection of the 60s, but when I actually play back the tape historically, those were not great times. 50s may be better, but when you go back in the history of our country and of the world, it doesn't matter how many highlights can be found within a decade. There were hardships and trials and tribulations. There was destruction. There was chaos. We are now at that point where it is an orchestrated work by the enemy, that's Satan, to both disband the family, to provoke individuals who have given their life to the Lord, to give up on God, to seek some other alternative. I've got something on the news flash that I want to share with you related to today's teaching as well. So this is the narration beginning, and it's not a long section here. The Death of Benedad is the title of this. It's a subtitle. 
But what I'm hoping that you will see in this, which is what I also see in this, is that it is a revelation. There is lamentation that follows, and that ultimately in this as well, it points to tribulation. What wasn't included and that was intentional is a word that has a similar rhyme to it, and that's celebration. Because this is a time to be serious, it doesn't mean celebration is not coming. It means that in the necessity of staying focused, you have to have an attitude that's serious. You embrace the fact that God's got this all under control, so stay in control. Control yourself. Here's Elisha. Elisha went to Damascus in verse 7, chapter 8. Second Kings. And Benadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him. So Damascus isn't per se his territory, but he is an itinerant prophet. He moves around all territories. And so the king of Syria right now would be an enemy king. Oh, he forged alliances in the neighboring communities but actually an enemy. And it is important to know that in this world, there are nations pitted against nations. There are those presiding in the top tier of executive management, presidents, premiers, whomever, whatever title they go by, they very likely are those who are not friendly or at least their alliances do not align with the church, with who we are as a nation. There are confederations that are forming globally. Africa is in several series of takeovers, military coups in which a democratic voted authority figure has been ousted for a military replacement. We've seen that. Jesus teaches on it presently, meaning that we have his word that says that's going to happen. It's happening. And so as we look at Elisha right now, he's moving towards ultimately an area that is his. That's Samaria. That's where the 10 tribes are. He's kind of their prophet. He's respected by both the northern and southern kingdom. Obviously, he is. But Judah also has parallel to what Elisha is doing, prophets. They're as perhaps as significant, but they're not as renowned as Elisha. And so on this trip, and it's very likely he's moving towards this because of a word that he will have to share. When we see the life of Jesus, he was always in a movement, and it seems that he's anticipating what his movement is going to have the objective in doing. Jesus never by mistake ended up anywhere. He was very cognizant that there was a plan that the Heavenly Father and the Spirit by whom he was guided as well was moving him towards if not individuals, communities of listeners, as well as those who would object to him, deny him, defy him, conspire against him. Jesus moved 
not happenstantially, but by divine authority. And if it was to put truth into one person, that's where he would go and his disciples would follow. This may be one of those same encounters, a man of God on destiny to speak truth, but in the speaking of that truth to be touched sorrowfully and what it represents. Benadad, king of Syria, was sick. So we know when he came into the scene, and now he's on his way out. And by the way, anybody that pounds their gavel or makes and wages threats on TV or in articles that are in positions of authority, they may be in, but they're boasting about what they do not know, and that's when their time is up. There are, at any given moments in historical reflection, coups and assassinations, and the fact of the matter is, in these days, hearts that just stop. Because there's a fear in men as to the outcome of either contributions that they've made for what they want to enjoy, and they question whether they ever will be able to. We've seen now and the life expectancy of men actually a decline by several years. I think it's because of the tensions, the hardships on the heart, and things that we're doing contrary to what God has asked us to do, in which the residency that he's to have in these hearts is cordoned off to simply a closet, as opposed to the whole mansion that he wants to take over. Elisha, I believe, is moved to deliver this word. The king said to Hazael, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? And so what we see here is the question that usually prompts all of us to talk with God or to have an answer from God. Even the pagans would at times take note of an opportunity to hear truth that benefited them, deny truth that denied them, but to benefit from truth. Yes, that's what we'll do. I hear he's in town, so this is what I want you to do. Take all of these provisions. Notice this. It's fairly substantial. Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus. That's not a present. Those are presents. That's, that's a check wagon of bribery. Just check with him. Ask him if I'm, if I'm going to recover from this disease and take a gift. So either this guy wants to make sure his mission is accomplished Completely. Maybe he's afraid for his life. A gift. I'm going to give him a wagon load, camels loads, that I can have a favorable answer. So 40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, Your son Benadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So you can hear kind of the schmooze. 
He's not really a son of Elisha at all. He's, we have no indication that Benedet ever was signed up with the prophet school of Elijah and now Elisha. There's no exception here. It is probably at that time a cultural means of showing respect, but I can't help with all of the gifts that are being carted over to him and now this salutation that it's to butter him up. Notice the answer. His question is, your son Benadab, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from the disease? And verse 10, Elijah's answer, and he says, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. So this is kind of what appears to be doublespeak. It's not a lie. You'll see what happens here. He very well may indeed recover from the disease, but what Elisha is going to be given is actually the heart of Hazael who's delivering this message. He's a fiend. He is a traitor. He's an inside guy who's brokering for advancement in his career opportunity, and that is to replace the king who's dispatched him to find Elisha. That very well may be the motive behind all the things that came to Elisha. He may not be aware of the story that the last person that tried to bribe a prophet or to take that which was not acceptable, it didn't work out too well for him. And that was Gehazi. So the word right now is a prophetic utterance. I understand your question, but the outcome is being revealed to me right now. And something about this answer tells us that he knows something about this guy. Deep inside this man's heart, this messenger is darkness. He's a sinner. And probably what we would say, the worst. Because what we do know in the turning of the next several verses or a page is he's premeditatingly planning to take the life of the king whom he serves. Complete disregard. It's a fact-finding mission for him so that he can plan a strategy on a better position for himself. Verse 11, Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. So one of the interesting terms here is ashamed. The importance of this is that usually for that to apply to us personally is that there must have been some type of act in which we have something to be shamed of. There's nothing that Elisha has to be shamed about or ashamed of. What is it that is provoking him to move into this stare this deep stare in which his countenance is affected and to the degree that it will provoke a question 
from the person whom he's actually being affected by. His countenance, it says right now, is now into a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept, moved to tears, not for what he has done, not for any other reason than he looks at the individual who in Revelation is going to be despicable. You need to understand that these pictures here show us that God in his sovereignty and God as a creator is very aware of all of us in our nature. And until our nature conforms to his nature, which is a work only by the Holy Spirit, there is, and I mean this in the most disciplined respect of God, a weeping, a broken heart. Why? Because he created us in the womb. He purposed for us, each of us, to live in fellowship with him. And anything that in the movement of our lives from the time we were delivered from the womb that gets in the way of the narrow way, it is a moment in which the countenance of God certainly projects his eyes upon us. He knows exactly the points in which a man, woman, or child either has the propensity to deviate or in fact has detoured to their demise, destruction. And it hurts God when we are, if you would, roadblocking. If rather than staying on the course, we move from the course, that hurts God. Now, he's not up there weeping and, could, angels, can you give me another box of Kleenex, please? I can't handle this. God's a strong God, but he's a God that can be touched. And we know that because Jesus is God, and he was touched by humanity to at least on two occasions weep for humanity. I've asked myself in looking at this, was there a time in which I provoked a tear from God in a direction that I was going. And so if I look at this literally, as well as embrace it figuratively, but nevertheless looking at it spiritually, I can say, totally, absolutely. What would tell me that? My conscience? What else? The situation that I could radically assess. When we're studying Proverbs, the Proverbs were built from the beginning up to chapter 9 on a moral standard that an individual born into this life would be secured in this area of the conscience to know what is right and wrong, good and evil. And therefore, that complements this very thing that God could be super sensitive to anything that pulls us from him. And very often it is not necessarily another, it is the free will of the agency that we possess in these bodies to follow someone other than God for whatever reason and forever, forever how long we want to do it.
he wasn't ashamed of himself. He was not ashamed of God. He felt the weight of sin that would tragically lead to another man's demise, Hazael, and to the man that he will betray, the king, for he has been caught in an act of a murderous, premeditative plot. Hazael sees it, and he must in some way be surprised to know the strength of Elisha. Sensitivity true, but it says, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, But what is your servant, a, a dog? That he should do this gross thing? He's double speaking. Elisha has read his heart. He has given the recitation of what this man will do. He knows he's being spoken to by God. As do people who in their tenure on earth know that God's speaking to them. We know it. We knew it. We know it. Others fabricate lies concerning it. Am I a dog that I should be spoken to or suspected in that manner? And so Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. He hears a word that's actually matching the intention of his conspiracy to kill Benadad. And notice, then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. Elisha basically has read the mind of this man that he would give him positive info so as to not suspect what he was going to do to him. For what follows is the act that was murderously conspired. And it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died and Hazael reigned in his place. He got the position by taking someone out of position. He was essentially confronted by Elisha, and Elisha read his mind, knew his heart. And this is the intent of what God as well will do, even to what we would say enemies of you for me. We very often say, God's heart is for me, for our nation, but it couldn't be for them in that place over there. But in fact, everyone has a Hazael mentality. It's because our sin nature that is easily provoked through pride and expressed in what we will do to have something better and something different than God, we will be the worst of whomever you could read about in the Bible just like them. Unless you're just like Jesus, you will be just like the others.
the ones that don't want God, or they don't mind benefiting from God. They don't mind having a healing here or there. But to give themselves over to God when they're so close to reaching the pinnacle of position that they believe will satisfy them. And so Elisha has a broken heart realizing that his nation now is going to be moving towards a calamity based on the guy that he's facing off with right now. And you would think, well, if I had power, if Elijah could call down fire and Elisha knows what this guy is going to do, call down fire, eliminate him, eliminate him and change the pages of history for God's people. You see, he's a picture of the Lord. The Lord knew what were the intentions of those whom he came. It says that he came into his own and his own did not receive him. He could have changed the pages of history that would have affected to this day even our outcome, which probably wouldn't have been anything other than consequential. He knew the conspirators. He knew Judas. He kept Judas close to him for at least three plus years. And we see nothing to the effect of him treating him any different than the other 12, knowing that all along he was involved in a conspiracy to betray the Lord. The picture of Elisha weeping is a picture as well of what Jesus himself did. I would like to be able to direct your eyes to John chapter 11 very quickly. John chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 35. That's our target verse preceding that 32. And when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How often do we say that in our difficult situation? Lord, if you'd been here, that would not have died. This would not have taken the effect of the consequential in my life. God, you knew what was going on. You could have interceded at any time, Lord. Now, you need to understand that Mary is one who is uttering something that is both hard, but she also has a spirit that has been acknowledged as very close to the Lord. Isn't it interesting how we can have an attitude on one thing and yet the other thing is not dismissed. The spiritual integrity of a person and their sensitivity for God, their love for the Lord, their devotion to God. But on the other side, their challenge with, God, why did you let this happen? Why? But notice this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. The compassion of the Lord, the sorrow of the Savior was genuine. He was touched authentically by the loss of life. Now, Lazarus was a dear friend. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. And this isn't talking about his salvation. He anchored in looking forward to Jesus as we have anchored ourselves in looking back to the work of God through Jesus. What he's most notably weeping for is what the consequence of sin has done. It causes tears to flow, misunderstandings about God to be spoken. It causes decisions that render a choice that could mean for somebody eternal damnation. He saw a community weeping. He also knew that within that community, he was not per se necessarily believed in and welcomed. He had gathered for himself multitudes of those whom said he is Messiah. Others who said, man, he makes great breakfasts, bread and fish, gluts us. Teachings are not too bad either. He's quite a surfer. He calms the waters and he walks like none other. I get sand between my toes. He gets a foot washing. Many things being said about Jesus, which really had nothing to do at all for why he came, just noted for, yeah, cool guy. But he weeps authentically with a community that is broken in sentiment. Lazarus was a good man, a great brother. The weeping is important to note that it is a reflection of God, of realizing the mission that Jesus satisfied as God, that he came to dry tears, change circumstances, affect the consequential for the beneficial. This is what Jesus did do, does do. You know, at the baptismal, we've had people that add to the tank a tear or two. They come up, They've gone down. They've experienced a spiritual renewal in their life. It's called regeneration. For some, it may be, in fact, just a renovation, coming back to the Lord for the time they left God. It was a wonderful occasion yesterday at the river. It's been like a wonderful occasion for the last couple of weeks here. The people would come and submit to being immersed, and that it invokes weeping who are not identifying with sin, but who are identifying with salvation. See, Jesus knew that the consequence of mankind was going to play out because of sin, but as Savior, he knew that as beneficiaries in faith, he would dry those tears. He would shed tears but he would dry those tears. The other text that I want to share with you 
as well that is important for me to do. And then we'll close on this. Luke 19. Um, I want to take you there. Luke 19. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 41. I know some of you guys with your phones, you're going, we outdid you, we're faster than you. So 19, making sure I'm in place. And uh, as he drew near, he saw this city and noticed this, he wept over it. And here's what he has to say about it, saying, if you'd known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, I want you to stop there. The people aren't saying this. This is God. He has anticipated that in the revelation of whom he is, which is a part of the title, the revelation of whom he is and what he revealed about God to this nation they did not receive it. They're blinded. You can't see now. You've pressed so far into the doubt zone, you have no opportunity to see the safe zone. And as a result, the consequence that will come upon this city that has attracted millions on pilgrimages and given Israel a name will come down stone by stone that would make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Lord has not ceased to make his visitation undoubtedly evident to any. Our text today in Romans 1, where we read, said, the attributes of God are revealed from heaven among all creation. No one can deny the work of God. You see a rainbow? It's God's rainbow. It's not an organizational rainbow. It's God's rainbow. It is to be looked at, marveled over, that what he said all the way back in the early pages of Genesis would be an evidence of him being the same God today, promising. What's happening today? Floods like you would not believe could happen in these days. But I say, yes, they are happening because the world is in upheaval. Jesus wept for the destruction of the city God has a heart for the destruction of both cities, but even more so, he has a heart for the destruction of the homes and of children. He has a heart for all of it, all of the domestic stuff. He has a heart for all of the governmental stuff. He has a heart for national stuff. Yep, he's into that too. There's nothing wrong with nations that are uniquely who they are, a different people group but they're all a part of God's creation. Ultimately, a family that he sees that because of sin, he would weep for. How did they not know 
of my visitation, which leads us to the understanding of evangelism. But I will tell you, it's not evangelism exclusively, nor independent of the church. It's exactly where you guys are today, here, hearing the truth, understanding that in these last days, this is a great place to be. It's a great place to tell people they ought to be and to be frequenting it as much as it is permitted with a key and lock. Wouldn't it be great that the demand of this place were such that we just said, doors open, security guys, just let them in, give them slippers, offer them coffee, let them pray. Matthew 24, verse 27. Here's how you know what it is that Jesus said was true and how you can make this comparative to Elisha, how you can understand the relevancy of the title. Revelation, lamentation, tribulation. Many will come, verse 5 is where I'm going to pick it up, in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That's happened, still happening False religions, false doctrine. Got a whopper for you that I saw just the other day. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. The earth is rocking, and it's not because of a concert. All these are the beginning of sorrows. He was acquainted with sorrows, and sorrows will be the expression of the earth that groans for its makeover. Religious deception, wars, famine, death, martyrs, worldwide chaos, worldwide preaching. These are good times that we are in, even though they are heavy times that we are in. Christians are responding to a fake Bible passage reportedly generated by ChatGBT that said Jesus accepts trans-identified individuals stating there is no man nor woman. And a woman whose heart was divided between spirit and body came before him and the fake passage reads, in quiet despair she asked, Lord, I come to you estranged for my spirit and body are not one. How shall I hope to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus looked upon her with kindness, replying, My child, blessed are those who strive for unity within themselves, for they shall know the deepest truths of my Father's creation. The passage continued, Be not afraid, for in the kingdom of God there is no man nor woman, as all are one in spirit. The gates of my Father's kingdom will open for those who love and are loved, for God looks not upon the body but the heart. It cites whom wrote it. Notice this one commentary. There was a purpose, there was a person who intentionally asked ChatGPT to generate a fake biblical passage about Jesus accepting trans people, which he posted in the R Trans channel. I know it's not real, but it gave me some comfort, the user posted. I'll stop there. Comfort's not going to save that soul. And a lie 
which again is artificial intelligence, is actually somebody behind it that's trying to fabricate a Bible. By the way, that's being done. China's promoting it. There are translations going out right now that have nothing to do with the Word of God. All scripture is given by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All scripture, not all doctrine that is not from that scripture. Not all language that cites Jesus is a document or word that you should believe or read. And so... You've been notified, and as a result of that, you may now say, is there anything that makes this a happy ending? Yes, there's a celebration coming, and there's lunch very soon. The Lord is going to deal with you as one who loves you, a good shepherd who shepherds you. But in any areas of our life right now, he's very aware that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything, even if you possess everything.